There's something about the power of stories that captivate our attention, that draw us in deeper. Something bigger than ourselves and bigger than our lives. I think that's why we love stories with characters who are on a mission to defeat evil with good. So we're drawn to stories like Luke Skywalker, where there's this hope of this future. We're, we're drawn to, to guys like Gandalf, who are going to come and who are going to help rescue the, the world from the clutches of evil, or from, from, from Neo as he fights Mr. Smith. Like we're drawn to these stories. But have you ever wondered why? So I think there's something hardwired in us that in the midst of story helps shape our minds and bring us into something that's bigger than ourselves. Neuroscience has actually done a lot of research on this and they found out there's a a hormone called oxytocin. And the oxytocin, when you're engaged in a story or watching a movie or reading a great book, uh, it just it infuses this hormone into your bloodstream. And what it does is it, it actually brings you together. It does shape your brain and invites you into the story. It teaches you how to be compassionate and generous. And it's the reason that an old tough guy can cry at the end of a, of, of a romance movie. Not that I would know what that's like, but, you know, it could happen, Right? There's a guy named Paul Zeck, and he's a neuroscientist, and he calls oxytocin the moral, the, 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 the moral chemical, right? The, this moral compound, the moral molecule, because it does shape our brains. And I think there's a reason that God wired us this way. God wired us to be able to take in stories, because God wants to use stories to help teach us deep truths. And, and I think that's one of the reasons we love when Aslan defeats the white witch, It's one of the reasons we love when Harry Potter defeats the one who shall not be named, right? Because it's inviting us into something bigger than ourselves, but it's also revealing a truth that we know is true, that the world is broken and that we need somebody to fix it, that we need somebody to rescue us from it. But there's a question I always have at the end of these movies that we love, and it's this, what happens next? Like, we see a great character like Luke Skywalker defeat, you know, the evil emperor. We see Aslan defeat the White Witch. We see Neo defeat the Matrix. And, and then what happens next? I mean, they put out some movies that try to make sense of it. But you wonder. Like, everything, the, the, the evil's been defeated by good. But then what does that mean for us? Is it just pancakes and butterflies for us for the rest of our lives? Or is there something that we need to do about it too? So I think when we... Think about Jesus and the greater story that God has been telling us through the Bible. God has put on our heart this thing that we know is true, that that the world is broken and that we can't fix it on our own. But yet, I think one of the things that God wants to reveal to us through, through the Bible is that there's something that needs to happen in here. It's not just out there. Let's fix the brokenness out there, but it needs to happen in here too. But what is that thing? Some of you may be familiar with a story in John chapter 3 where Jesus and his disciples are, are out. Jesus had just done this amazing miracle. He turned water into wine. And then they're out. And at night, there's a guy named Nicodemus. Somebody say Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes and basically under the cover of nightfall because he didn't want anybody to see him. And he comes and he talks to Jesus. And Nicodemus basically says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, I, I see you're doing all these amazing things. And, and all these miracles you're doing can't be on your own. God has to be behind you. So Nicodemus is wondering, what's, what's going on? Like, what, what does the future hold? 
And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's been expecting the Messiah, the new hope to come. And so he's like, Jesus, are you the one? But I want you to hear what Jesus says to him. In only the way that Jesus can say it, it gets really confusing. But notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus in Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, John chapter 3, verse 3. He says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Nicodemus is like, huh, scratching his head. How, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's getting pretty biological, right? He's like, well, how does this, it doesn't make any sense. How does this happen, Jesus? And notice what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. When, whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's like, hey, listen up, right? L- listen up, Nicodemus. Unless one is born of water, meaning you're born, you know, the, the biological way, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is the born of spirit is spirit. And then Nicodemus walked away as confused as you guys walk away from hearing that too at first. And you wonder, what, what does that mean? I think what Jesus is saying is this, is that we need something to happen in here. That there needs to be this new birth, which we don't understand. But it, something needs to happen inside of our hearts, and something needs to, to change us in here. And that thing has to come from God because God is spirit, as Jesus says to Nicodemus. So, so here's the question. Like, what does this look like? And how does this happen? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't wait very long to tell us in John chapter 4. And, and, and what can be a familiar story for some of you, but it's a powerful story, I think, as we unpack it. And it's Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And I think this actually has the, the, the power to, to change the way we think about our relationship with God. And this has the power to impact the way we see our own lives through the lens of who Jesus is. So I'm, I'm excited to dig into John 4 today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. It's in John, Matthew, or Matthew Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 4. And so uh, just a little context here. Jesus had just had this conversation with Nicodemus. He is, is now out. He's been preaching. He's tired. And it's time to go back to Galilee. Now, if you think of a map, Jerusalem was down south. Galilee is up north. And to go through to Galilee, the fastest route is to go through a place called Samaria. And if you were with us a couple months ago, we talked about what Samaria was. It was the area where the Israel, northern kingdom of Israel got exiled to, to Assyria. Many of the Assyrians moved there and they had babies. Now, the Jews looked at the Samaritans as not full Jews. They called them half-breeds, and so they hated them. So there was this hatred between Samaritans and between Jews. Now, most Jews went the long way around, but not Jesus. Jesus went straight through because he knew he had a divine appointment to make. So notice this, John 4, if you're reading along, John 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Notice it said he had to pass. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Joseph's or Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Their clocks were different than ours. The sixth hour means about noon. High noon. This is when Mad Dog Tanner likes to do gunfights, right? This is high noon, right? So Jesus is there. It's the hottest part of the day, and he sits down at this well. 
Now, I think if you're like me, we, all, we always kind of think of Jesus as like this like clean, glowing, you know, guy. And he always just, his hair is probably perfectly combed. And just imagine Jesus here, right? He is tired. He's weary. He's got dirt on his face. He needs some water. Like this is real Jesus. Like, I mean, his feet are dirty. He's wearing his Air Jesus sandals. I mean, he is needing a break. He sits down for a glass of water. He sends the guy off, the guys off to firehouse subs to get some sandwiches. And so he's by himself. And notice what happens next. Look at this, verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy Subway sandwiches. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you would you ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so she's, she's very confused. She's, for one, confused that there's anybody there. In that culture, you would go to the well about five or six in the morning when it was cool. But there's a reason she's going at noon, because she didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be around anybody. We can take away that she's an outcast. And she first, okay, so that's going on. And then she shows up at the well, and here's Jesus, a Jewish man. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. So she's like, why are you even talking to me? And Jesus is asking her for a drink. Like, this is confusing. And so notice what Jesus says to her in verse 10. It's so good. He says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus says, I asked you for a drink, but if you knew who I, who's sitting here right in front of you, you would have asked me for a drink, and you would have been given living water. And, and so notice the woman. She's confused. She doesn't know what's going on. She says in verse 11, she says, well, well, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? So she doesn't understand what, what Jesus is saying here yet. She's like, you don't have a Yeti in your hand. Like, how are you going to even drink this water? You don't have a cup and you don't have a ladle or a spoon or a bucket. Like, what are you going to do? And then she says this in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So this is a very famous well that Jesus is at here. It's Jacob's well. If you guys go back to the story in the Old Testament that we covered six months ago, we see Jacob, he's the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Jacob dug this well. This was actually, uh, Jacob didn't dig this well, but it's been renamed Jacob's well. This was actually the well where Jacob's dad, Isaac, met his mom, Rebecca. This is actually the same well that Jacob met his wife, Rachel. So any single guys in the room, you might be like, I need to go check out this well, right? <laughs> like, this is a good well. This water, it's... It may not be living water, but there's something going on in here. And Jesus is here with her, and she's saying, who, who are you? Like, are you greater than Jacob? You got living water? How are you going to get this living water? And so notice what Jesus says. Jesus looks at the water, verse 13, and he says, everyone who drinks of the water in this well will be thirsty again. Like, this is just water. Like, th there's nothing special going to happen in this water. He says, but if you drink this water today, you're going to come back tomorrow. But verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Somebody say welling up. So the term welling up really means leaping up. Like imagine like Chloe, my daughter, after she had a Snickers bar, right? She's like leaping up, right? She's just, she's just sugared out of her head, 
right? This is the, the picture of the water. It's like leaping up in our souls, right? It's just, Courtney's looking at me like, you give her Snicker, full Snickers bars? Like, no, you do, I thought. It's like, it's just leaping up in our souls, this water, this, this beautiful spring of life. And so notice what she says. So he gives her this picture. Like, wow, this water is going to be leaping up? Look what she says. She says, sir, verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or notice or have to come here to draw water again. See, there's a reason that she was coming here to draw the water. And she's thinking, well, if I could have this living water, I don't have to come back here. I don't have to come back here at noon and hide from everybody else again. I'll just have this living water and I'll be fine. And it brings, I think we see something in her that we see in ourselves often, is that we love the idea of something being given to us, but we don't necessarily see the person who's giving it to us. Like, she wants the water, of course she does. It's like an everlasting gobstopper, right, from Willy Wonka. Like, who wouldn't want this? It never ends. So she wants the, the water, but she doesn't get it yet. She doesn't think about Really, the picture of water is what Jesus is talking about, the, the spirit doing in her life and in her heart and inside of her. So what she's saying is, I want the water, but the reality is we need more than water. We need more than the gift. We need the giver of the gift. See, Jesus is trying to, to explain something to her, but she doesn't get it yet. He's leading her down the path here. So she says, I want this water. Now, one of the challenges that we have often in church is when we, when we talk to people who don't know Jesus yet, and they say, I want this life that you hear We'll often say, okay, pray this prayer, fill out this connection card, you know, and, and then start coming to church. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't hand her a connection card here. Notice what he does. Jesus says this in verse 16. He says, okay, do you want this water? Cool. Go and call your husband and come here. What? Like, she just said yes. Like, why would you say that? And so she's like, well, I have no husband. And watch what Jesus does. He says, you're right in saying yeah, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wait a second. Hold on, Jesus. Like, she seemed like she was interested, and now you're calling her out. Like, that's mean, right? Like, this is mean, Jesus. What are you doing, Jesus? Like, why, like, why, why don't you just have a conversation with her? Why does her husband need to be there? But, but I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. She would love the free handout. She would love the water. She would love the gift. But Jesus is saying there's something tender in your life that we need to talk about. To understand your need for the giver of the gift, you need to understand why. And so Jesus knows she has a wound, and he goes after it. And you might think that's kind of mean, but really, that's where grace is found. How many of you have ever had a, 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 a scab, right? I think all of us, some of you guys never have never left your house. You guys know what a scab does. Scab heals. And what happens when you touch a scab? It just feels kind of gross, right? It's kind of crunchy, and then it falls off on the ground, and you're like, what is that, you know? What's the difference between a scab and a wound? Like, a wound is tender. You ever had an open wound? If you come to my house, there's lots of open wounds. An open wound hurts. You even touch around the open wound, and it hurts, right? Jesus isn't going after scabs. Jesus is going after wounds. Jesus is coming after something in your life that is open and hurts because he knows that he needs to enter into that wound if you're ever going to heal. You can try to heal it on your own with some Neosporin or some A&D ointment, which A&D is the bomb, by the way. You can, you can heal that up and go to a scab on your own. Jesus wants to enter in and truly heal 
this wound. So he calls her out on, on this wound that she has. See, it turns out this woman's been married five times. And the guy she's living with now is not her husband. And that's the reason she's coming at noon. If she wasn't ashamed of this, she would have come at five or six. But she knows she's an outcast because people talk about her. Hey, there she is again. The Widowmaker. Like, we don't know what happened to the other five. Maybe the new guy doesn't want to marry her because the other five guys died. And he's like, we'll just hang out, right? Like, we don't know why. But, but we know that she's an outcast and she is afraid. So, of course, she wants the water because she doesn't want to go to the well anymore. She'd rather just hide in her home and hide and cover the wound. Nobody needs to see the wound. Why can't I just keep to myself? Of course, she wants the water. She says, you can't just have the water. We need to heal the wound first. And so Jesus says, go get your husband. Jesus says, I don't have one. He says, I know. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with this wound. So Jesus is trying trying to say that we don't just need the gift. We don't just need the fix to the problem. We need a solution to everything because it's deeper than that. So if you're taking notes, here's something I think should stand out to us. Before we realize we need saving, we need to be confronted with our own sin. Like the reality is, living water sounds great. Heaven sounds great, doesn't it? Tell a five-year-old, hey, do you want to go to heaven someday? It's going to be streets of gold. It's going to be beautiful. Sign me up. I want it. Yes. There's so much more, though. Right? There's so much more. Like there's a problem inside of us. Jesus came to defeat the emperor and Mr. Smith and the white, whatever. Right? Jesus came to fix it all. But something needs to happen here. For us to live into this new kingdom and experience this new life. And it's not just pray this prayer and you're going to get to go to heaven someday. It's let Jesus fix what's broken in you to enter into your wounds so you can experience new life now. Is it going to be perfect? No. Live in a broken world. But it doesn't get all right. It doesn't just get right someday when we die and close our eyes the last time. No, it can get right now. It can get better right here and right now. And, and, and so Jesus is saying we need to be confronted with our sin before we need saving. So for me, when I was five, my grandma and I sat down and we read the wordless book. And you guys know the wordless book? I think I've shared a picture of it before. Like the outside's green, the inside's black with sin, red for Jesus' blood, white for being cleansed with sin, and the back page is gold, right? Symbolizing heaven. And she walked me through this, and I understood it at five. I said, yeah, I want to I say yes to Jesus. Like, I don't want sin to ruin my life. I want the blood of Jesus to cleanse me of my sin, and then the, I want the purity of being washed clean and, and being white as snow, as the Bible says, because of the blood of Jesus. I said, Grandma, can I say yes? And she said yes. And so she led me through a prayer when I prayed, and I said yes to Jesus. I believe I got saved, for sure. Ever since then, I've been walking and telling people about Jesus. But here's the thing. It wasn't until I was like 14 and I was at a youth uh, a conference and the, 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 the pastor was sharing about sin. And it was at that point when I was like 14, when I truly understood the depths of sin, it was like the Holy Spirit just said, bang, I just started crying. I started to just cry my eyes out. I, I realized sin and how sin separates us from God and it broke my heart. I actually went forward and asked if I could rededicate my life to Jesus right then. And many of you have that same experience. Some of you have said yes to Jesus, and then a little bit later, as you start to understand the truth of who Jesus is, the Spirit does a work in your heart, and you see sin, and it confronts you, and it bothers you to the point where you got to do something about it. And you cry, or you, you pray, or you go talk to somebody. 
We have to be confronted with the depths of our sin to understand the immeasurable grace of Jesus. Does that make sense? You guys with me on that? So this is what Jesus is doing to her. There's a danger in just saying, oh, you want to go to heaven and say this prayer and then do your best. There's a danger in that because we never see our sin. It's always their fault or their problem. And we're always thinking that something else is going to fix our issue, politics or policy or different leaders or whatever it is. And Jesus is saying, no, the problem is here. Jeremiah said the problem with the world is our own hearts because they're wicked and deceitful. And that's why Ezekiel says that we need new hearts. And so Jesus is trying to say, we need to be born again. And that born again situation has to happen in every single one of you. Not because your parents took you to church or not because you said something or not because you got baptized, but because you have been confronted with your sin and you say yes to Jesus because you realize you needed saving. Notice what happens next. Jesus says, do you see your sin? And she changes the subject. How often do we do this too, right? Jesus is like, hey, Drew, there's that situation. And I'm like, how about them cowboys, right? He just changed the subject. Notice what she says here, verse 19. She says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she gets theological. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where other people ought to worship. Okay, so she gets theological, right? We do this too. You know, I've got a buddy and uh, he grew up in the church, and, but I can tell the Lord's working on his heart. But his response when, when, when God's calling him out on his sin is to, to call me or we talk, and he'll say, yeah, but Drew, what about the people in India? What about the people in China and Africa who never get to hear the name of Jesus? I can't believe in a God who would not save them, who would not give them a chance. And I'm like, hey, man, let's not go there yet. Jesus is working on you. Like, we can't solve all the problems in the world. There's some mysteries in some things. Is God good? Yes. Is God faithful? Yes. Is God, did Jesus come and give his life on the cross so all people can, can come to know him? I believe so. But that doesn't mean everybody says yes. We gotta wrestle with that, guys. But the reality is this, that when God's working on you, we gotta stop trying to change the subject. And we gotta open up the wound and say, okay, come on. Come on, Jesus. Give me, give me what I need. And so that's what's going on here. And so Jesus, notice what he responds to her. This is so good. If you got your, your, your pen or your highlighter here, just notice verse 21 through 24. This is so good. Notice, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do. You, you worship what you do not know, saying so, the, the Samaritans, you guys got it mixed up. We worship what we know for salvation is the Jews, meaning that, that we have the Old Testament Bible and it's pointing forward to Jesus, to me. And then verse 22, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what church? Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must, highlight that must, star it, circle it, must, Worship in spirit and truth. Don't miss this, guys. Jesus leans into a major truth here. He's trying to recalibrate our hearts. He's trying to say that worship is not about keeping rules. Worship is not about doing things. If you've been following along in our greater series, our greater story series, we saw that God rescues his people from Israel or from Egypt, brings them into a new place, gives them the law, right? And in the law, the Ten Commandments, in the law, Darren did a great job teaching on that a few months ago, he gives them all these rules. And the rules were for when they mess up. Basically, here's what you do when you mess up because you're going to mess up. 
And the, the law was about relationship with God and with other people. But the rules were provisions. What do you do when you screw up? Because you're going to. And so here's what happens, though. The, the people of Israel, and especially these Pharisees, what they did was they took that and said, these are the guidelines. Okay? So I just need to do these things, and I'm right with God. And so that's what she's saying. Well, our father said, we come to this mountain. And you guys say you got to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, you're missing it. You're missing it. It's not about where you go. It's not about what you do. It's not about how you do it. It's not about having your hands clean. It's not about washing your cups. It's not about what you do there. It's about spirit, and it's about truth. It's about being born again. It's about recognizing the truth of God. It's not about some religious ceremony. Let's be honest. Let's look at the world. Let's look at the religions of the world. What do they do? It's all about religion. It's all about ceremony. Look at Buddhism. Look at Hinduism. Look at Islam, right? It's about doing more good than bad and hoping that God's going to rescue you at the end. Unless you do this one thing, and then you're going to be guaranteed heaven. Are you serious? Some of you have backgrounds in the Catholic Church. Do these five things, and you're going to get to go to heaven. What? I thought it was about spirit and truth, Jesus. He says it is. Like, following Jesus in relationship with God is not about keeping rules at all. Don't ever let your worship become about keeping rules. Don't feel like you got to go to church to keep rules. Come because you want to gather with God's people and you want to worship Jesus. How do we worship Jesus? Spirit and truth. What does that mean? Nobody knows. So let's figure it out together. Okay? Notice what Moses said 3,500 years ago. 1,500 years before Jesus came. Here's what Moses said. He said, love your God with your, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You know what that word might means? That word might in the Hebrew means totality. It means the totality of who you are. Like love the Lord your God with your mind and your heart and everything that you are. The totality of who you are. And so we're created to worship. God created you to worship things. We've talked about that before. But God wants us to worship with everything. And so here's what spirit and truth means. Notice it in two different ways. Our spirit is the core of who we are. So we worship him through a spirit of a posture of our heart attitude. And you guys know what this feels like if you're a football fan, right? Like how many of you watch your team and unless you're like a Rams fan, but how many of you guys watch your team and when they do something good, you're like, excellent. What a fantastic play. No, if you're like Pete, you're like chest bumping everybody in the room, right? Last year during the 13 second play, you guys know football, you know what I'm talking about. Chiefs, Chiefs won. So Pete and I were at my house with a bunch of dudes watching the game. And every time either team scored, we're like, yeah! And Pete and I are like in each other's face, chest bumping, wrestling on the floor, you know? Like there's passion, right? That's like all who we are. It's mind, it's body, that's spirit, it's compassion. Yet how often do we go to church and we're like, I raise a hallelujah. I'm more like this, I raise a hallelujah, right? Like where's the passion? Maybe I'm singing along. Where's the heart? Jesus said, worship me in spirit with all of who you are. It's not just singing songs or listening to a sermon. It's the whole of you, your whole life. This is what it's all about. It's an attitude of reverence. To, to worship something, to think of, it, think of it as worship as worthiness. Like worship in Jesus because he is worthy. So don't misdirect it. But we also worship God in truth, meaning that there's a knowledge of who God is. Like, it's not just this idea like, oh, God, he's out there somewhere. I'm going to worship you. 
No, it's like there's truth. The truth is that Jesus is the son of God who came, who stepped out of heaven, the second person of the Trinity, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross and rose from the grave and is coming back again. And that he sends his spirit into this world to to give us a, a rebirth. Like that's the truth. You can be passionate about God, but if you're not worshiping God in truth, then you're just worshiping some mystical thing that's out there and it's not real. So Jesus says, you need to worship God with everything you have, but it needs to be in truth, meaning you need to know you're worshiping God, not nature, not a crystal, not some made-up thing, but the God of the Bible. You're worshiping Jesus. And see, I think sometimes in church we do things, but we don't know why we do them. We pray, but we're not sure why. We take communion, but we're not sure why. We, we, we baptize new believers, but we're not sure why. Jesus says, you need to know why. Forefront, do you know what you believe and why you believe it? If somebody says to you, hey, Pete, why does your church do this? Can you give them an answer? It doesn't have to be perfect. But can you tell them why? Not from a head knowledge, but from a heart knowledge. It's because we love Jesus, and he calls us into a relationship with him. So think of it this way. When we worship God in spirit without truth, it leads to some shallow emotional experience, Right? Some of you maybe have been to a Christian concert where you felt that. It feels amazing, but it's, it's, it's spirit, but it's not truth. If we worship God with just truth and no spirit, we end up just going through the motions. We're like religious zombies. Some of you might have been to churches like that before. You have to have spirit and truth together. So here's another note if you're taking notes at home. Worshiping God in spirit and truth, it means seeking to love him with everything we are. It's not just on Sunday mornings. It's not just on Tuesday nights. It's not just at a Bible study on Thursday. It's all the time. It's who we are. We're, we're never going to be perfect at it. We're going to mess up all the time. But it's the idea is, is your life characterized by wanting to worship God with all of who you are? Or does God just get this little bitty piece of your time on Sunday mornings and on Tuesday nights? How about Thursday morning? How about Friday afternoon? How about Saturday when you're at home with your kids? How about Saturday night when you're out with your buddies? Are you worshiping God with all of who you are? So notice this. Jesus calls this woman out on her sin. He tells her that we don't worship God through religious practices. We worship God through relationship. And notice what he says to her right here. She says to him, well, sir, I I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. He will tell us how to do this. And Jesus says, I, who you speak to, am he. Like, I am he. And I'm telling you right now, this is how it's done. You worship me through spirit and truth. Don't wait for somebody else to come because they're never going to come. If you have a Jewish friend, they're still waiting 2,000 years later. Jesus is saying, I'm here now, and I'm telling you, this is how you do it. In the book of John, there's seven I am statements where Jesus is revealing who he is. We're going to talk about that next year. He's, I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. This is the first one. Okay, notice this. Who does Jesus give the first I am statement to? A Samaritan woman. You notice that? You ever thought about that before? Jesus doesn't tell Nicodemus, I am he. Jesus doesn't tell Peter or James or John, I am he. Who does he tell I am he to? A woman at the well who we don't even have her first name. Jesus comes out and he shows us that the gospel is for everybody. And it's for those who are broken the most. It's for those who have the biggest wounds. I was hanging out with my buddy Brad, and he owns Atlas Coffee. Some of you have been to Atlas Coffee. It's really good. Well, I didn't know he owned Atlas Coffee. 
So we were at the coffee shop and we were just meeting and he's like behind the counter. He like kisses the girl making the coffee. And I'm like, dude, you act like you own this place. He's like, I do. I was like, okay, that makes sense. That's why you kissed her. Okay. Right? Like Jesus is saying, I own the place. Like I'm maybe making the coffee, but I own this place. And I'm telling you, if you want to have a relationship with me, you worship me with spirit and truth. It's not about outward actions. It's about your heart. So last note, if you take a note, one more time. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he's the only one who can give us a new heart. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you got to be born again, born of the spirit. And Jesus is telling us that we need new hearts, that we need to be born again. And it only comes from Jesus. So I want to do a little theological debate with you guys real quick. So there's a debate, and I haven't talked about Darren with this. We'll have to talk about this on the podcast. But there's a debate is, are we people with two elements or three? Here's what I mean. So are we body and soul? Or are we body, soul, and spirit? Have you guys ever thought about this before? This is a great lunchtime discussion, okay? Have this discussion at lunch today if you want, if you want to really get a riveted discussion, right? All right, so are we body and soul? This is body, and then our soul is who we are, right? Or are we body, soul, and spirit? There's a lot of really good debates on all of it. Don't take what I say, but I believe that we're body, soul, and spirit. And I think there's been some great arguments and a lot of, bit, a lot of written about this. The idea being our body is kind of like our vehicle, right? This is... This is who we are, right, as our physical nature, but our soul is the eternal part of us. Our soul is who we are. Our soul is our characteristics. Our soul is our personality. Our soul is, you know, that, that part of us that, that um, is going to, to live forever. But then we have our spirit. And our spirit is the part of us that connects with God. But because of sin, our spirits are we're dead. We're, we're spiritually dead. When, when Adam sinned, what was the death that God was talking about? He was talking about a spiritual death and a physical death, not a soul death. And so our spirits are basically inactive. So when Jesus says that you need to be born again by the spirit, he means your spirit needs to be awakened. Something inside of you needs to happen. There needs to be a change. That spirit inside of you that is dead, that is dormant, needs to be reignited. And so I think that's what Jesus is telling us here, that, that, that the spirit within us, needs to be reborn. And so when, when we recognize the, the truth of who Jesus is, when we see our sin, when Jesus touches at our wound, when we see that we are incapable of saving ourselves, what happens is we recognize in truth that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save me of my sin. And at that point, I say yes. We, 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 and the Spirit is moving. The Spirit is tugging. The Spirit is moving in our hearts. And when we say yes to Jesus, our spirit is awakened. We are reborn. That's when we are given a new heart. Another word for this is regeneration. Somebody say regeneration. regeneration. So when you say yes to Jesus, there's this incredible transaction. We call it divine imputed righteousness that happens where God takes your sin away and deposits the righteousness of Jesus in your account. All of that happens at the same time. As you say yes to Jesus, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, ignites your spirit. And now you are born again and made alive. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> we'll talk more about it. I know, this is heavy-duty stuff. But go ahead and start thinking through this because this is big. These are, these are big parts to our faith to understand. And you can see it in Acts chapter 9 in the Apostle Paul. Here's Paul. 
Paul is killing Christians. He's arresting Christians. He's a bad dude. Paul stood there with the coats at his feet and nodded as Stephen was stoned to death in Acts 7. And so here's Paul on the road to Damascus, getting ready to arrest Christians. Christians are fleeing everywhere. Paul thinks he's doing it for God. Paul thinks he's going to honor God by snuffing out these guys who are following the way, this Jesus guy. Paul's body and his soul and his spirit are walking down the road to Damascus. And then a blinding light happens. And Jesus says to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It was probably way cooler than that. But Jesus calls out to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, who are you, Lord? And he's like, I'm Jesus. And he has this revelation. God's spirit awakens his spirit. Paul becomes the greatest church planner of all time. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. How did Paul change from this dude that wanted to kill Christians to the dude that God wrote, the dude that God called to take the gospel to the Gentiles? It wasn't just because he had a head knowledge. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I think Jesus is the Son of God. No, it was because he had heart knowledge, because he was given a new heart. When God's Spirit awakens our spirit and we're born again, it's then that God takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Does that make sense? And at that point, we are allowed and made free to live and to follow Jesus because sin no longer has its control on us. Are we still going to mess up? For sure. Are we still going to sin? Yes. But sin is no longer binds us because the power of the Holy Spirit has awakened us. And we are now born again because the Spirit comes from Spirit. You can't be born again unless the Holy Spirit of God awakens your spirit. So we'll try to flesh this out more for you because I know it's kind of hard to get our minds around a little bit. So here's what I want to say. If you take away anything from today, here's what I want you to take away. That what Jesus wants for you in light of the fact that he has come and defeated darkness and evil, is he wants you to stop seeing that your relationship with him is about keeping rules or trying to be good or trying to earn his love or trying to earn his favor. He wants you to see that it's about a relationship with him. And as you pursue that relationship with him, he changes you to want to do good. He changes you to want to be different. He changes you from the inside out because the inside is where the spirit gives you a new heart. So what about you? When you think about your faith and you think about your relationship with Jesus, do you have a new heart? Is Jesus some like theoretical figure? Is it all mental? Or is there a passion? Is your heart been changed? Do you care about the things of God? Do you want to chest bump Pete because you're so excited about what Jesus is doing in your life? Because if you do, he'll be ready in 15 minutes outside in the lobby. Like the reality is God wants something so much more for you than just keeping the rules or falling into the motions or being religious zombies. God wants you to be alive, to be born again, to be awakened. So notice what happens. Jesus, Jesus says this to the woman. His disciples come back. Look at verse 27 real quick and we'll close. Disciples come back and they're marveled that he's talking to her. They're like, wow, he's talking to a Samaritan? And they got their subway sandwiches. They start to unroll them. You know, Jesus probably got the meatball. And then verse 28 says, the woman left her jar of water. She didn't care. She left the water. She ran into Sychar and she started telling the people, come and see the man who has told me everything I've ever done. And they're like, hold on a second. We actually don't ever see you because you hide the whole time. What? You're talking to us now? And she's like, got her wound wide open. And she's like bleeding all over the place. And she's like, come see him. Like, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah. And they start coming out. 
Jesus starts pushing on their wounds, and they all get saved. And the disciples are like, what? Samaritans? This is crazy. Notice, she was so moved that Jesus changed her heart that she went to tell everybody about it. I, I think there's a, there's a great truth here. Like, you know, it's a beautiful reality. Our faith isn't some silent transaction. You go to a new restaurant and you love it, what do you do? You tell your friends. She went and told people who even weren't her friends, you got to come meet Jesus. Now, I just want you to ask, who in your life do you need to go tell? You won't believe what Jesus did for me. You need to meet him too. God has placed at least one in our lives for us to go tell. And so, so Jesus is saving these people, and he's recalibrating the way people are thinking about worshiping him, and it's this beautiful scene. But I want to slow it down and ask us as we close, and I'll invite uh, Karina back on stage. What is keeping you from going all in on Jesus? Like, what is keeping you from worshiping Jesus with everything you are? Like, what is it? Back in the year 1519, Leonardo da Vinci painted the, probably the second most famous painting of Jesus. It's called Salvador Mundi. Some of you have probably seen this picture. And I don't know about you, but I would look at Jesus. He's holding a crystal ball for some reason. I'm pretty sure Jesus never had crystal balls. But he's got his fingers crossed. I don't know what that's going on either. But doesn't he look like very clean and, you know, nice and a little bit gothic, you know? You might, you might, he's probably a Marilyn Manson fan in this picture. But... I don't know about you, but when I see this Jesus, I'm thinking, I gotta get, I gotta get it together if I'm gonna go see him. Like if I'm gonna go have a conversation with this Jesus, I like I need to get my stuff together. I better start keeping the rules. Like I better start figuring it out. This isn't the Jesus we see in John 4. In John 4, Jesus is sweaty, is dirty, his hair is probably braided up like Bob Marley. And he's saying, I'm here. I love you. You don't need to get right to come to me. I came to you. You just need to let me in. And then he puts his hand on our wounds and he says, stop hiding. Let me in. I recently heard a pastor say that if you're 99% known, you're still not known because there's 1% of you that you're refusing to give over there's something inside of you, it's sin or it's guilt or it's shame or it's an action or something you said. And you're refusing to give that to anybody. And so you put on a little bit of a face and you reveal 99% of yourself and things are good, but I'm kind of struggling with this one little area when on the inside you are just bleeding like crazy because that wound is wide open. And I think what Jesus wants us to see in John 4 is he's come to heal the wound. So let him in. But to let him in, you got to give him 100%. What's your 1%? Here's what I want to do as we close. I want to invite the worship team back on stage. And I want you guys just to stay where you are. And I want you to bow your heads. I want you to close your eyes. And when I said 1%, most of you thought of something. You thought of that thing that you haven't told anybody about. You thought of that thing that you prayed about a long time ago and you're just trying to keep hidden. You thought of that thing that you think scabbed over, but it's not. And I want you to give it to God. And we're just going to sit quietly. Karina's going to play, and I want you guys just to ask God, God, I invite you in. I give you 100%. And I ask that you do something beautiful and move in my heart because I want those springs of living water. And I know that only you can give them to me. And then I'll close us in prayer in a moment. Let's give that 1% to God.